Good morning, church. It's great to see all of you and guests. If you're with us this morning, what a joy and a privilege it is to have you with us as we study God's word. So everybody, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Philippians chapter four. I'm gonna start reading in verse six. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What a rich passage from God's word. It's familiar to many of us. I was thinking this week uh, that as my kids get older, so we've got two who are driving and we've got one who I practice with right here in our Brook Hills parking lot just to get ready. The day's coming, right? So they're, they're of the age where they're either driving or they're almost about to drive. And so when I hear the keys jingling of one of our older sons and they grab the keys and they're headed down the basement, I have found this, just discovered this this week, that the command that they're most familiar with on their way out the door is the same every time they leave. Be careful. <laughs> That's what I say every time they head out the door, keys jingle, I say be careful, and, and out they go, right? By, by contrast, guess what God's most frequent command to his children as they go on their way is? It's not be careful, it's don't be afraid. Not different. Huge contrast between the one, hey, be careful, and the other, Don't be afraid, charge forward, don't be scared, right? No command in scripture is repeated more often than the command to not fear. Do not fear. Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow. Jesus says, do not fear what man can do to you. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. These are words from Jesus. Paul says here, don't be anxious about anything. How all-encompassing is this call to be fearless and faithful and courageous, right? And I think there's a reason. There's a reason we need God to say that to us so often. And the reason is simply this. We are prone to fear. We're prone to anxiety. It's hardwired in somehow as a result of the fall. Fear comes naturally, right? Anxiety, worry, stress. So you go to the self-help section, they're not trying to teach you how to worry. They're not trying to teach you, hey, you want to You want to churn up some anxiety? Here's how you do it. No, we don't need a book on that. That comes quite naturally. It's encoded. We know how to do the anxiety thing. We know how to do the worry thing. What we need to hear is God from the outside saying, I don't want you to fear. I don't want you to be strapped down by that. I want you to risk intentionally. Look, so in this area of Christian truth, there is both tension and training, Tension and training. So I'm going to fly through this first section, this this tension section, because we're really going to land ultimately in this training section. I think that's the burden of our text. But on the way in, we're going to look at the tension. Point number one, the tension, fear and faith in the Christian life. So even last week, Pastor Daniel's message to us from Philippians 3, it keyed in on this truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only lasting remedy for guilt. In other words, in Christ, this is in your notes, you have somewhere to go with your guilt. That's a provision of the gospel. It's provision of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That, friends, is the reminder of Philippians 3, but we're not in Philippians 3. We're in Philippians 4. Philippians 4, though, adds to that and says this. 
that you have somewhere to go with your fear. Not just with your guilt and your shame. In Christ, Christians have somewhere to go with our fears, with our anxious thoughts, with our stress, with our worry. So here's the tension. God's word is life-giving, but your life isn't predictable. Right, God's word is life-giving. If we, had a, if we had time to process life, we would process it biblically, right? But panic can seize us before we have a chance to even think about what God's word has to say to this issue. So, you know, in broadcasting, what I hear is that there's something called the broadcasting delay. Sometimes it's called the seven-second delay or the five to ten-second delay. And it's mainly there, I gather, for censorship purposes, So if something unexpected happens, for example, in a live interview, or something unexpected happens in a live concert, right, then they have seven to 10 seconds in the editing room to dump that. They have seven seconds to bleep it. They have seven seconds to find it and put a blurry thing over whatever it is that shouldn't have showed up on the screen. They have an opportunity to to make sure that the we didn't see this coming factor is reduced. That's what it's there for. If only life had a seven-second delay, right? Like, if only we had this, this little advance preview window that could tell you before the storm comes, before anxiety comes pouring in, could just say, hey, you're going to want to sit down, give you seven seconds to just kind of collect yourself because news is coming that you're not going to know how to handle. If we just had that advance moment just to collect our thoughts to, so that the, we don't have to absorb the full impact of the unexpected thing, right? The thing that brings in fear with it. That's why we need passages like this to train us so that God's word is reflexive, so that it's allowing us to move forward with faith and not fear. So let's talk about training, the training praying away fear. So we all know by now, if you've been along for the ride for this series, we know all is not well at the church in Philippi. This congregation in Philippi is experiencing some difficulty, right? So the guy who's writing this letter, first of all, is writing from prison. So things aren't well there. Not only him, the heat is on for the community of faith as a whole. At the end of chapter one, you find out that there's suffering, that there's persecution from the world against the church. You keep reading, and you find out that there's rivalry things going on. You keep reading, and you get to chapter three, and there's legalistic teaching, teachers who are spewing venom and works righteousness, and they're stacking guilt on brand new Gentile believers. So there's turmoil from without, there's pushback from without, but, but it's not just problems without, there's problems within. Look at chapter four, right here at the beginning in verse two. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. So there's not just tension coming from without, there's tension inside the church. The command, so don't miss this, look, the command to not worry in chapter four is laid against a backdrop of some very real things, hard, challenging things, right? Fighting deacons, heretical, legalistic teachers, imprisonment, suffering, and yet somehow in verse seven, there's this promise of peace 
to Christians who are walking through those kinds of challenging times. So we need to, a couple things. Number one, understand God's peace. Understand God's peace. So this is where it has to start. A couple of observations right here in the text. You can look at verse six and seven. You can see a couple of things. This peace, whatever else it is, this peace is connected to the practice of prayer. So pray with thanksgiving and the peace of God will guard your heart. So it's connected to the practice of prayer. And then we find out the nature of the work this peace does in the life of the Christian. What does this peace do? It, you see it there in verse seven. It guards the heart and the mind. And not only the nature of the work that peace does, but the, the place in which this stuff happens, the, the dynamic situation, and that is those words, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, friends, that's not a throwaway phrase. That's not jargon. That's a hugely important New Testament phrase. In the New Testament, all of God's workings of grace in his people are found in Christ. It's the only place we know God's grace. Paul says in another place, every spiritual blessing that we know as believers is in Christ. That is, it's found in our union with Jesus when we turn from sin, put our trust in him, we're in Christ, and now all those blessings are firing, they're all operable in our lives. In other words, you you can't do an end run around Jesus to get to the peace that God intends for us. Sometimes we can think about that in the world and in secular culture, it's kind of like, oh, I'm knowing the peace of God, not outside of Jesus. All of God's grace is mediated through Jesus. It comes to us through Christ. So we're in Christ, and now all of this is available. So you think about the way that the New Testament talks about God's peace. Even the Apostle Paul himself, he uses different phrases to describe these dynamics of peace that are at work in the lives of Christians. So for example, Paul sometimes talks about peace from God or he talks about peace with God. So for example, right here in Philippians chapter one, verse three, this is on the screen. He says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or for example, a similar concept is when Paul says this in Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there are these two massive realities, right? On one side, we have peace from God and peace with God. Those are pointing at the same thing, this peace that's, if you will, positional. That is, once we're in that place, once we're in Christ, this peace is yours. Doesn't matter how you feel, doesn't matter what happens on any given Thursday, you are positionally, you have this. It doesn't rise or fall, it's yours. You have peace with God. You think about the relationship between peace with God and the peace of God. One is positional, the other is experiential. But the experiential one doesn't happen apart from that positional one, right? So think about it this way. Peace with God is the first gift of salvation. You hear the gospel, you respond in faith, You run to him, and there's this verdict that's announced over your life. And what is the verdict? Forgiven. Reconciled. It's God saying to you, we're okay now. 
My justice isn't going to hunt you down anymore. You've been, you've been declared righteous. You've been declared accepted by me. And that verdict doesn't change. It's a once-for-all positional verdict. It's yours. You have it because you're in Christ. So, so if you're not a Christian here this morning, this is the first peace you need. Peace with God, peace from God. How do you get that? You hear this story that God in his mercy has sent his son to enter into this world, to live a perfect life, and then to die as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's justice was poured out on Jesus on the cross, and he rose again three days later, and by turning from sin, trusting in Jesus, when your eyes are open to those realities, you are now in Christ. You have peace with God. Everything's okay between you and the one who made you. That, friend, that's what I would urge you to do today if you've never done that before. That's the first thing to do. Experiential peace is downstream of that. So get that sorted out. But then there's this peace of God. There's peace from God, peace with God. Then there's this peace of God. And this is, this is highly experiential, this peace. Matter of fact, Paul, in our text, gives specific instructions about how we can grow in experiencing this peace from God on a day-to-day basis. So how do those two things relate? Peace from God and the peace of God. Well, once we have peace from God, once we have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, now the peace of God, this experiential peace, can now fire in our hearts and in our experience. That experiential peace can now start doing its work, and what's the work that it does? Look at verse seven. It's gonna guard the heart, and it's gonna guard the mind. You need that. That is not extracurricular. That is something we deeply need as Christians. The great 17th century theologian, John Bunyan, He was a master of biblical word pictures. And he demonstrates that mastery primarily in his allegory of the Christian life called The Pilgrim's Progress. But he also does it in a number of other books. And one of them is called Holy War. It's lesser known, but it's another allegory. And and Holy War is an allegory of, of spiritual warfare. And in it, there's this story of a battle for the city of man's soul. This battle that's being waged for the soul of man, the city of man's soul. And there are gates around man's soul. And those gates are the gates by which Diabolus, the devil's trying to get into the city and conquer the city of man's soul. And then Bunyan, at, at one point in the book, we're introduced to someone called Mr. God's Peace. And that's Bunyan's hat tip to this text in Philippians chapter four, because Mr. God's peace, where is he in the story? He's stationed at the top of the wall and he's overlooking the city of Mansoul and he's ensuring the harmony and the peace and the joy of the citizens. He's a patrol over the town. That's what Paul is saying here. This peace stands over the town of the believer's heart, of the believer's mind. He patrols, he's scanning back and forth and he's guarding the heart and the mind. And isn't that, just think about that with me. Isn't that exactly where we need a patrol? Guarding this. Guarding our minds. We have anxious hearts, don't we? 
we have anxious minds. You ever feel that you can't turn your mind off? It's just constantly running. And even when you're trying to sleep, your mind just keeps running. And the more you think through things and you're trying to solve some kind of problem or whatever, and the more you think about it, the heavier it gets. You ever have that before? And maybe you just give up on sleep, right? That sort of thing. Our brains can just run. They, they go on and on and on. And then you start exhaling out loud, right? And you're just trying to release the pressure that's building up on the inside. Look, acute suffering can do this. Prolonged trials, chronic pain can do this. A transition in life can do this. Or, or just the, the cumulative buildup of a thousand little things that just been stealing joy. And next thing you know, a flood of anx anxious thoughts and pressure and stress just comes pouring into your heart and into your mind. Listen, friend, whatever it is that keeps you awake at night, God cares about it. God wants to interact with you over that thing. He cares about it. And not only does he care about it, he wants to give you peace in exactly that area of your life. That's why this command is, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, pray. Bring it all, all the mess, all the burdens, bring all of that into his presence. Look, by talking about this experience of peace, Paul is not promising, and Scripture doesn't promise that that means suddenly, miraculously, everything in your circumstantial world changes. You know that, that tumor you were worried about? It's gone. That's not necessarily the case every time. That's what makes this peace so unusual. That's, what, that's why Paul says this peace doesn't compute it, this peace surpasses knowledge. It bypasses the things that make sense in this world. It, it's contrary to circumstances at times, right? This isn't the peace that comes on the other side of a nature walk. This isn't the peace that comes on the other side of a vacation because there is another side of vacation, right? You come back. So it's good news that this peace isn't just tied to vacation. It's gotta be better than that. You know, this world understands when Christians have peace on good days. That's not a surprise. That doesn't sur surpass understanding or surpass knowledge. We totally get that. Yeah, we don't trust in Jesus, but yeah, when we got money in the bank, job, everybody's good, kids are safe, thriving, clean bill of health, yeah, we get peace on those days too. Now this peace is something supernatural an experience of God's grace. And this peace, friends, is able to do its, its soul-stabilizing work in the unemployment line, in the agony of infertility, in a broken or breaking marriage, when you're at the hospital with no answers, when you're trembling at the graveside. This peace can do its work in the hardest places. Peace that surpasses Understanding This is a piece that enables us as believers to say things we could never say apart from God's grace. You think about something that maybe many of us sang growing up. These words make no sense. When all around my soul gives way. Has the bottom ever fallen out on your life? All around my soul, crumbling, 
everything around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. Somehow, he's holding my feet steady in the wind. That's a grace from God. That's what this passage is talking about. It's passing that stuff out. It's saying, pray away fear. Pray yourself into this this grace that Christians are called to experience. That's the kind of peace God's inviting us to. So, So experience God's peace. Next point, experience God's peace. It's not just something to understand. It's something to experience. Look at verse six with me. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. I'm so glad that we're not commanded in this verse to just don't worry, period. See you worrying, stop it. Stop that right now. Like it, that text doesn't do that. It doesn't do that because we don't operate that way, right? That's not how we're wired, you, you might be like me, where, where if I asked you right now, take the next five seconds and think about nothing. You're thinking about something, right? You might be thinking the word nothing might be printed in your mind, but that's something too, right? You're, you can't just think about nothing. I realize that there are entire religious systems that are based on the notion that it's possible to completely empty your mind. But that's not what the Bible's calling us to do. That's not what the Bible's aiming at. An empty mind isn't the objective of the Christian life. Matter of fact, look at verse eight. The very next verse, Paul gives us an agenda for what to think. He doesn't just say, don't worry. Just just remove all the worry. He says, plug this in. Whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. So all that to say, look, and this is something you see throughout the New Testament. Our call as Christians isn't to just stop doing things. Don't worry. Don't lust. Don't do it. Don't lust, right? Don't be greedy. The Christian life isn't just the absence of greed. It's the presence of generosity. Matter of fact, the generosity is what pushes the greed out. It's an exercise of the soul. It's not just, I won't complain. I'm just gonna remove all complaints. It's give thanks. It's plug something into the place where complaint used to live. Here again in this text, we're not just commanded, stop worrying, stop being anxious. It says, Push anxiety out. How? With prayer. Push it, pray away your fears. In other words, you ask the question to this text and you say, Paul, you say don't worry about anything. How? He says, pray about everything. Displace anxiety with prayer. Apostle Peter says something very similar in 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. You know, we can bring all of it into the presence of God. It's such a beautiful thing about listening to children pray, right? I remember when our, when our children, when our boys were really, really young, Ellie might have been a baby, when they were really young, and we went through a, a goldfish phase at the Mason house, and we, uh, unfortunately, we buried many goldfish over the course of about a year, and then we finally gave up. We're like, we're not good for goldfish. They're not good here. I don't know what we're doing wrong, but goldfish come and die in our house. 
And so we thought, let's try, let's try something maybe sturdier. Let's get a betta fish. And so we got our first betta fish, just beautiful blue tail. It's moving around in the water. What we didn't realize until a few days after we got the betta fish is that this betta fish struggled with uh, self-loathing and ate its own tail. And so it would just reach back and just be gnawing on its own tail. And those nights were very interesting because you'd see the fish over there chewing himself to death. <laughs> Literally, he died of self-inflicted wounds, which that's, a, that's an illustration for another sermon. But we're, we're there and just praying with the boys, and guess what? They could lump all of it together. They could pray for the salvation of China, and they could pray that the fish would stop hurting himself, right? It, all of that just it seemed perfectly blended to pray for the fish and to pray for China. God tells his people, I want to hear it all. I want to hear the big, the great, the small. He wants us to go to him with everything, not just the things that have cosmic ramifications in the world, right? He, we're not wasting his precious time when we bring the fish into our time of prayer. He cares about what burdens us. Isn't that a beautiful truth? Don't be anxious about anything. Pray about all of it. And not only does he hear us when we pray, so often, oh my goodness, in God's grace, he answers, doesn't he? Sometimes miraculously, right? Sometimes the tumor's gone and nobody can explain this. Nobody saw this coming. But praise God, he's shown his mercy here. Right, but miraculous intervention might not be the only answer. And it's certainly, friends, it's not the only way that we can have peace. Moses didn't always see the waters part. Joshua, David, Jesus, the guy who writes this from prison, and he's not gonna get out. By the way, you're gonna die here under this Roman sword. So, so the remedy as we seek for and pursue peace, isn't just more knowledge. It's not, hey, if I could just understand, if God would just let me in on things, on why he's doing what he's doing, I'd feel peace. Maybe, maybe not. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Maybe just knowing more wouldn't necessarily help us embrace it. That's not the remedy. The remedy isn't just pile up distractions. You know, let's just get another app. Let's get another game system. Let's, let's do Netflix. Let's get, you know, whatever. Mindless activity. It's not that. God has something better. A peace that surpasses understanding. A peace that stands guard over the heart and the mind. And, and I, I love the way that Paul makes it so clear that how this peace takes its post over your life is when you pray. You pray, and here comes peace. And he's, he's establishing his station, his post, over our minds and hearts. So prayer, friends, is both therapy and theology at the same time. Prayer is God graciously saying, I'm gonna clarify the nature of this thing one more time. I'm gonna clarify how this thing works. You get to be weak, I get to be strong. That's what we get to do today. Then you wake up tomorrow, we do it all over again. You get to be weak, I get to be strong. Your prayer says that. It is an act of dependence. There's a hymn that perhaps many of us know by heart. What a friend we have in Jesus. And one of the verses, I think, is basically this verse set to music. It says this, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. 
all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Everything, all our burdens, all our anxious thoughts. So let's just prime the pump with application. Here's on our way out, five things to think about. Practical suggestions for fighting anxiety. Number one, pray often and give thanks. Pray often and give thanks. So cultivate the discipline of daily prayer. Set aside times, first thing in the morning, for extended meditation on God's word. Pray the scriptures, pray the psalms, and not only at the beginning of the day, but as needed throughout the day, constantly, continually saying, God, help. I say that every day, multiple times a day. God, help. I read a book earlier this year about prayer called Help, Thanks, Wow. And the thesis of the book were those are the three primary ways that we talk to God. We say help. That's our way of just reminding ourselves throughout any given day. I need help. I'm, I'm a dependent creature. You're the sovereign one. Help me. I'm not up to, for this, right? So help and then thanks. That's a way that we, we just remind ourselves throughout the day, you've been good to me. And I'm going to acknowledge it in the great and the small. So help, thanks, and then wow. It's just you're worthy of praise no matter what comes today. You are worthy. I'm going to ascribe the glory that belongs to you. The Christian speaks these three languages fluently throughout the day. We're saying this. Help me. Thank you. Wow, you're awesome. Prayer should be a constant recognition of those realities. Number two, think big thoughts of God. Think big thoughts of God. So listen in on the prayers of holy people throughout the scriptures. Listen into Daniel in the Old Testament. The man's in exile and he's praying these prayers that are grounded in massive realities of the greatness of God. Read the prayers of the persecuted church in the New Testament in the book of Acts and they're, they're praying to a God whose kingdom is unstoppable. Third, stay out of the future. Stay out of the future. That's Jesus' orders, by the way. Don't worry about tomorrow. You've got enough problems today. Do not worry about tomorrow. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Ed Welch's excellent book, Running Scared, and he calls, in that book, he calls worry a form of false prophecy. We're trying to get out and make predictions about the future. And he's like, you don't belong there. You don't belong out in the future. You're, you're going to be a false prophet. Stop, stop that. He says, warriors are visionaries minus the optimism. Look, bear this in mind. You don't belong in the future. God is there. You don't belong there. So there's grace for today, today. Tomorrow's grace comes in the morning. We have new mercies every morning. You can't get tomorrow's mercies today. They come tomorrow. Stay Stay in today. Trust God today. Number four, encourage one another. Encourage one another. So let's, let's be family. Let's be a family of faith. Let's love one another well. Let's, when you listen to brothers and sisters in Christ in your small group or you have fellowship, but listen for anxiety speak and enter in with prayer. Pray with the person right there. This should happen all the time for Christians. Pray with the person right there. Pray for the person right there. Look, no member of this church should ever have to walk through suffering or anxiety alone. 
Scripture says a brother was born for adversity. We were born to walk through suffering together, not in isolation, not alone. So let's draw each other out. Let's enter in. Let's pray for one another. I I was working on this message, and uh, it was on Thursday morning. I got a text from probably my closest friend outside this church, a pastor in the area, and here's what he texted me. It was 10.35 a.m., Thursday, November 15th. You keep coming to mind today, so I'll just assume it's the Lord. Praying for you, your family, and your church today. I pray that you would know the peace of God and the yoke of Jesus is light. He didn't know I was preaching on Philippians chapter four. God just sets these things up, doesn't he? We, we talk about connecting meaningfully together as members of the church. That means that kind of thing should be happening all week long between members in this church. Texts like that, phone calls, conversations, coffee, where those things are exchanged, you're receiving them, you're giving them, and we're getting stronger together by God's grace. Number five, finally, live on mission. Live on mission. Prayer is connected to the mission of the gospel. Here in Philippians, don't forget what this letter is about, the forward-moving mission of the gospel. That's the broader context of everything that's here. This isn't just prayer about my own personal individual life. It's community. It's let's pray together. Let's pray fear away as we seize opportunities to share the gospel. When I first moved to, um, to Brook Hills and our family moved here in th- 2012 and I went on my very first trip to North Africa and I met in person for the very first time JD and JJ, our church planters over there in North Africa and We sat down in their house and they laid out the itinerary. Here's what we're gonna do the next couple of days. And on the short list of things that we were gonna immediately do was we're gonna hop in a van, we're gonna drive through the streets, and we're gonna pray. And that's exactly what we did. We all loaded into the van and I'm sitting there in the back of the van and we're just turning street after street after street and all you hear in the van is just prayers. And I'm looking out the window at things passing by and I'm looking at people maybe who have never heard the gospel, many of them who will be born and live their entire life and die having never heard the name of Jesus. And I'm looking out that window and inside the van you just hear prayers, prayers. God, get the word out into these streets. God, send people here. Send laborers here. God, use our intercessory prayer and break through hard places in this region of the world. Prayers. We heard the Muslim call to worship ring out and we just lift our voices up and over the the word that's ringing out, the call to prayer. We're praying inside that van that God would do great things. Look, this is what Christians do. We hear things and we pray about them. We see things in front of our eyes and we pray about them. We pray with the newspaper open. We pray with the Bible open. We process all the hard things in our lives and in our world in the presence of God. We pray. We cultivate this habit of the heart, this habit of dependence. Again, this isn't just for the individual Christian. This is about our mission together. A member of our global staff was just talking to me this week and telling me he just got back from East Asia where he was, he was over there just trying to encourage our friends over there, church planting work over there, and they've been experiencing, as you know, pushback from the government. Government is tightening the straps and trying to find all the gospel workers and kick them out of the area. And my friend, as he was telling me this story, he said, my favorite three words of the whole story, so we prayed. 
And I loved hearing that. So we prayed. Talk about the challenges? Yes. Face up to the difficulties and realities? So we prayed. That was the response. And it's very Philippians 4, right? My friend said, then I turned around at the end of that time and I encouraged our friends to keep sharing the gospel. He said, if you're going to get kicked out, don't get kicked out on a technicality. Go big. Right? If you're going to get kicked out, get kicked out because you couldn't shut up. Because you kept telling people the grace of God that's found through faith in Jesus Christ. Share the gospel. You know, we, we walked through the We Are series last week, and that was an important time for us as a church family. And we looked at God's word, and we looked at eight pursuits that he's called his church to pursue through the power of his spirit, and we saved this one for last. The last of the We Are's was we risk intentionally. And that was put last on purpose because it's there to remind us the life that we live as Christians is a life of faith. Paul said, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the risk-averse church is not doing it right. Pastor Dennis, he, we went off as a Brook Hill staff and we had our staff retreat together and he set up the time with this analogy. And he said, on the one hand, there are a couple of different kinds of churches. There's the, there's the ready, fire, aim church that kind of just quickly acts on things but doesn't take the time that really could have been beneficial to stop and think, is this the best way to do that? And then he said, on the other hand, there are a lot of churches that are more ready, aim, 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 and they actually never fire. <laughs> Just sort of waggling on the tee forever and not actually swinging the thing and getting something in motion. Look, that could be us. May God forbid that that would be us. Churches were all about having the correct aim. The crosshairs are just right. Do you actually ever pull the trigger and fire on something? Take a chance. Risk intentionally. Look, we recite the Great Commission every time we leave here as a church. We recite it. Why? It makes sense because of the last words that Jesus shared with his disciples. It was his parting instructions for his disciples. And this, this text made me think about that differently, that practice of ours where we leave reciting the Great Commission. What's, what does Jesus say to us when we all grab our keys and hit the door? He doesn't say, hey, Brooke Hills, be careful. Every time we recite the Great Commission, we're hearing Jesus say, hey, Brooke Hills, go get them. Hey, Brooke Hills, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Do not worry what man can do to you. Take the gospel out. Be bold in your witness. Look, that, that'll change the way we pray. That'll change the way we live in this world. 